Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. Maybe you've uh, found yourself from time to time in a, what you would call a high-pressure situation. This is part of what it means to be human, isn't it? All of a sudden, we're being called upon to respond to a situation that we didn't expect that we were going to be in, maybe something that we did not, uh, wouldn't really have chosen, don't really like a situation that we really like to be in. Maybe you've suddenly been put on the spot to answer for something that's gone wrong that you didn't know about, maybe at work or something like this. And as the whole room is turning to you to look at you uh, for some explanation, your face starts to get red and your heart starts racing and your mind is just full of all of these thoughts, how you're going to defend yourself, how you're going to try to explain what's really going on because someone seems to misunderstand and you really want to point fingers, but you're trying to decide if you're going to do it and your mind is full of all these things. What's going to come out of your mouth? Or maybe as you're serving someone, if you're, that's more your line of work, and somebody is just in a bad mood, and they just let it rip, and you're the target of it, and you didn't do anything wrong, you didn't ask for this, but you're having to respond to it, and you really just want to give it right back to them, right? But uh, you can't do that, and you're trying to figure out what's going to happen. What is going on in your heart? What's coming out of your mouth? Well... These high-pressure situations have a way of showing us what's inside of us. And I think as we just kind of enter into this realm of human experience, we know that all of us have failed, no doubt, many times in these ways. Perhaps as you look back on your life, you see ways that you've you know, really succeeded and you've gone through these situations in a godly way and you can praise the Lord for that. Trust that that is uh, the testimony of your life. I'd like to consider this evening from Luke chapter 2, From the life of Jesus, one high-pressure situation that I think illumines for us what truly is in Jesus, even from an early age. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41, this text contains the single revelation we have regarding Jesus' childhood. After he's an infant, what we have of the, the narratives of his birth. And here, at age 12, we see Jesus as a perfect son both to God and to his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. He's a perfect son. And just this one little uh, window into his life at an early age shows us that. The Gospel of Luke, written by the Dr. Luke, the companion of Paul, he wrote his Gospel, you may know, uh, under uh, maybe the the sponsorship or something of uh, Theophilus. He calls a most excellent Theophilus, and he says, he's writing, so that you may know the exact truth about what you've been taught. And of course, Luke isn't really contrasting his gospel with Matthew or Mark, saying that they're less reliable or anything like that. That's not his point. But he does show a concern for eyewitness accounts throughout his gospel. There's times when you read some narrative comment where it's obvious Paul has interviewed someone who was there. And he's giving you their eyewitness testimony. And that's certainly the case here. He seems to have interviewed Mary later in her life about some of these things. Mary treasured all of these things in her heart. And that seems to be his source that he's writing from. And he also has a particular order to his gospel. Not always chronological, but a little bit of a different order from Matthew and Mark. It's been said of these, we call them the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
that Matthew wrote to the Jews about Jesus as the rightful king of the Jews. His book is full of the Old Testament, and it really does seem he's writing to an audience that would be familiar with the Old Testament, the Jews, and demonstrating that Jesus was the rightful king of the Jews. This is Matthew. Mark, it's been said, wrote to Romans, not about Jesus the king, but about Jesus the servant. And you know that in the Old Testament, Jesus is, or the the Messiah is referred to and predicted and prophesied to be the servant of the Lord. John, it's been said, who wrote much later, John the Evangelist, uh, John the Apostle, wrote to the church and to the lost, it's been said, about Jesus as God. So we've got, it's not really biographies of Jesus, but these pictures of Jesus and who was he? What did he claim to be? Who was he really? He was the king of the Jews. He is. He's the servant He is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how John opens his gospel. But what about Luke? Luke, it's been noted, wrote, it seems, to Greeks to show Jesus as a man. And in fact, to show Jesus not as any man, but as, you could say, the ideal man for the Jews, for the the Greeks. He's perfect, of course. He's unfallen. He's the untainted one. And Luke points that out from even very early on in Jesus' life. For instance, just kind of a contrast between Luke and Matthew. Matthew, when he's recording the genealogy of Jesus, he goes back to Abraham, which would have been full of significance for the Jews. But Luke, as he recounts it, he goes all the way back to Adam. Why? Because Jesus is a man. That's really what he's emphasizing. Of course, both of these things are true about Jesus. It's just a slightly different emphasis for their audience's sake. Likewise, as we come to the birth account of Jesus, maybe one that you've memorized some of, Luke chapter 1 through 20, as Luke records the shepherds coming and finding this one who is laying in a manger, and they're going and spreading all these wonderful tidings about. What Luke skips that Matthew includes is all of the significant events about the Magi. Luke doesn't include any of that, nor does Luke include anything about Herod, you would think that this would be something he would include if it was absolutely uh, essential for him to, but he skips all of that, and instead, he goes to Jesus being presented at the temple. In Luke chapter 2, verse 21, he's prophesied about by two godly people there at the temple, Simeon and Anna. This is just part of Luke's emphasis on who Jesus is and what he did. This, as I said, this section, our text for this evening, it's the only window we have into really a very large chunk of Jesus' life from the time he was a newborn to the time he was about 30 years old. So that's the vast majority of his life that we know next to nothing about. Here also are contained the first recorded words of Jesus as a human when he was age 12. You see in verse 49, And he said to them, This is the first record of his speech as a boy. And what we'll see, I trust, as we read and then as we get into the text, is that Jesus was a remarkable child, but he was also very ordinary. I think Luke is taking pains to point this out in this record. He was extraordinary, yet he was typical in many ways. He was normal and usual in his development, yet in many ways he was model and ideal. 
And the reason for this strange combination of factors is simple, you could say. Of course, he's the God-man, and there are many things we could say. But why, why is Luke pointing this out? I believe it's for this reason. Because, as the author of Hebrews says, Jesus had to become like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And then the author writes a few chapters later, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. I believe what Luke is pointing out for us here is that Jesus was the perfect son so that he could be the sinless savior. He was the spotless lamb. I heard that in children's church there was talk this morning about being spotless, not having any blemish. Jesus was the lamb without blemish, even from the time he was a child. He was the perfect son, so he could be the sinless Savior. Let's read together, starting Luke chapter 2 and verse 41. God's word says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan, and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they, that is his parents, saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house, or in the margin, uh, about my, in the things of my father? Verse 50, But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I believe this really is a message for all of us tonight, certainly kind of in a maybe a special way for children uh, because Jesus himself is 12 at this point. He is the God-man. And in this way, he's a really remarkable example for you as young people, but also for parents as they see the kind of uh, example uh, that their children ought to be following. We as parents ought to lead our children in that way. But anytime that we're looking at Christ, even the Christ child, we have on display for us what God is like. And God became man. And this is how what godliness looks like in subjection to parents. Of course, this applies to all of us. But in what ways was Jesus the perfect son, even in this one window into his young life at 12 years old? I think we can 
see in several ways how Jesus was exemplary, but even more than exemplary, not just to be an example to us, but to be spotless for us. First, Jesus, I think, was a model Jew, is what Luke is saying here. He was a model Jew. And you see his parents obeying the law here from the very outset of this account. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. I don't believe this means that Jesus never went with them until then. But this particular instance stuck in Mary's mind. But what's going on here? Well, the God's law specified, if you turn to, you don't have to turn there, but if you look in Exodus chapter 12, or in the book of Exodus, God specified that the male Jews should appear in Jerusalem three times a year for the, uh, three of the feasts, the Feast of Pentecost and Tabernacles and Passover. These were, they came to be known as the Pilgrim Feasts because these were the ones that a large number of people were traveling to Jerusalem for. They were making a pilgrimage. There were others. There was the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's actually really in conjunction with Passover. There was the Feast of the, the other holy days of first fruits and of trumpets or of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. This Passover, it's one day, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was seven days. And here, as it says, as they were returning after spending the full number of days, some folks would go for the Passover and one or two days, and then they would leave. Mary and Joseph and Jesus and all their clans stayed for the full number of the Feast of Unleavened Bread following the Passover. They were obedient in going and really you could say uh, religious in staying. But what's the significance of this? Why is this one event singled out for us? And why, what's the significance of Passover? This is probably memorable to Mary. No doubt she had hundreds, dozens of stories of Jesus, a remarkable child. Can you imagine parenting a perfect child? No, you can't. Uh, <laughs> but um, she had dozens of stories, but why this one? Well, it stuck out in her mind. Is there a story that maybe you heard as a kid that really stuck in your parents' mind that, yeah, that was, that was you. I knew from the time you were standing on the stove or you climbed in the stove and you jumped off the sink or something like this that I had a handful of a child. And it just sticks in your mom's mind or that your child crawled into a rocking chair and cried herself to sleep, something like this. It's just, I remember that and I can never forget this. This is probably this kind of thing to Mary. But the Holy Spirit directed Luke to record this one for us. I believe it's for what it shows us of Jesus and also for the significance of this feast. What is the significance of this feast? Well, Passover, of course, is the celebration of the Jews being delivered from Egypt when the angel of the Lord passed over those homes that had blood on the doorposts. Exodus 12, Moses writes this, Now you shall eat it in this manner. He's speaking to the Jews in this time as they're about to observe the very first Passover. Eat it this way with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For, God says, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood of the lamb that they were to sacrifice 
The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This land that they were to to kill and eat, Moses specifies it was to be an unblemished male, a year old. And again, in children's church, apparently you were talking about this today, and how none of us is that. No, What is this picturing for the Jews? No person is unblemished, without spot or stain of sin. But that's what this lamb was, or it was to be a picture of. There was, there was covering of sin by an innocent victim. But what is the timing here in Jesus' life? When he became 12... They went up there according to the custom of the feast. I think this also is pointing to the fact that he is very typical in his Jewish upbringing. It was Jewish custom, according to uh, the, the Mishnah, that at 13, a Jewish boy could have his bar mitzvah. Maybe you've heard of this. By which he would become what, what that means is a son of the commandment. Uh, really a full, responsible participant in the synagogue and and a participant in the covenant of the law. And it's been discovered and suggested that these boys were, uh, it was recommended that they be brought to Jerusalem for one or several years prior to their bar mitzvah so that they could become acquainted with how things operated in the temple precincts and their responsibilities there and their responsibilities before the law. So this is Jesus in a very customary way, coming with his parents a year before he came of age in the eyes of the law, it seems, to learn what was going to be required of him. So in this way, Jesus was raised in a very typical, you could almost say, though, model Jewish fashion by faithful Jewish parents in a faithful Jewish family. And as such, Jesus was a lawkeeper from his birth. He was a model Jew. The, the image here so far is that he is blameless. He is spotless. But also, Luke seems takes pains to paint a picture of a normal family life. Jesus had normal experiences. He had typical parents. As they were returning, verse 43, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem but his parents were unaware of it. Parents, are there things that we don't know that our children do? Yes, of course. Did it take, how long did it take you to learn that your mom didn't have eyes in the back of her head? But supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. He got left behind by his parents. Has this happened to you? Uh, except it's not exactly that he got left behind. He stayed behind. But it was typical to travel in a large caravan. They're coming from Nazareth up to Jerusalem in the south. It's a long journey through uh, really dangerous country at times. And they would have come with many friends and family from their village, maybe other local villages as well. It was typical for the women to travel in the front of the caravan caravan with the, with the young children and the men and the older boys to travel in the rear. And here Jesus is kind of in that middle. He's coming into manhood, and maybe mom thinks he's with dad, and dad thinks he's with mom, and 
They never see each other that whole day traveling back to Nazareth. But then it comes night, and they're looking for him, and they're settling down, and, wait, I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. Didn't, didn't you leave with him? Didn't we tell him? Is he really in Jerusalem? And they're, they're checking with everyone. They didn't find him, but they would have had to spend the night and make the whole journey back the next day, probably making it at sundown and having to spend the night in or near Jerusalem. It's really no stretch to imagine how distressed they were, not only for having left a child behind, but with all the guilt and the regrets and fears that come with not knowing where your child is or what's going to happen. Why didn't I double-check before we left? Have I failed the Lord? Mary, no doubt, they felt responsibility based on what they had been, what had been revealed to them. I hope he's okay. What if we don't find him? How could I be so careless? Jesus was a normal child with normal parents. But then as they come to find him, it seems actually on the third day, uh, there's discussion about this, but it, it seems likely that a day out was day one, a day back was day two, and day three, probably one of the first places they looked, would have been the temple. And here you get to see how remarkable this young boy was as he comes into what I think you could describe as a high-pressure situation. He really is a dutiful son here. When they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then, after three days, can you imagine, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. This is probably an image they never forgot, seeing him there without any care in the world about how anxious they've been the last several days. People are marveling at his understanding and his answers. They themselves are astonished or, or overwhelmed. What's going on here? Well, Jesus had a remarkable comprehension of the law. Uh, one commentator said, after the feast, it was the custom for the theologians of Israel to remain there for a few days to have what they called theological disputations, in which they would share the latest ideas and insights into theology. The students of the rabbis would sit at their feet, for their learning process was very similar to that of Socrates and Plato at the academy. It was through questions and answers. The students would ask the rabbi questions, and at times, as a teaching technique, the rabbi would return questions to their students. And you know what it's like to marvel at some child prodigy. Maybe we haven't seen a Mozart in our day necessarily, but have you ever seen the Scripps National Spelling Bee? Isn't that just thrills on a Friday night to go watch these middle schoolers spell impossible words? You just hear the word and it about breaks your brain, right? I looked up some winning words or some final round words from the last few, few years. Bougainvillea, it's a, a shrub or a vine with small flowers on it. Can you spell bougainvillea? I, I hope I'm saying that right. I looked them up, and I don't know if I got my international phonetic alphabet right here, but aguilette. Aguilette. It's an ornamental corn hung around in loops on the shoulder of military uniforms. Pendelechi. Pendelechi a drop-shaped diamond or gem used as a pendant. And 
these middle schoolers just spell it and they have no idea they've never heard these words but they just have this intuition to know how the language works and they put these letters together and it really is a remarkable thing and you're just what I've never heard that word in my life it was this kind of response that these people were having to Jesus but not just about spelling and it's not because he had kind of a, a marginal understanding of what they were talking about. He had a real deep insight into what they were talking about, real understanding and comprehension. You'd expect a child to have a child's understanding of the law and of God, not that of a seasoned and mature god fear. You wouldn't expect that. But that was the level of understanding Jesus demonstrated by his questions and his answers. He, he understood the facts of the Bible, but he also understood the significance of them. He understood relevant applications of the scriptures and even probably some of these finer points of dis disputation. No doubt because he had no effects of sin on his understanding and because he could fellowship with God in an unhindered way, but also because he understood much of the Bible in relation to himself. And that becomes very clear that he did have a concept of who he was in relation to God. But then there's this really exemplary interaction with his parents. And if I could summarize what Mary is saying or kind of rephrase it, it seems she's saying, how could you do such a thing to us? She's, you, you get a hint of the exasperation. Look, we've been sick looking for you. And she probably was. She's a loving mother trying to let her son know, don't we do this sometimes? They just have no concept of what it is like, what they've just done from the perspective of an adult. And you're trying to communicate them to them how serious it is what they've done. And Mary thinks that she needs to do this, and she's doing this. But I would point out, she doesn't say, we've been looking everywhere for you. I think that's significant in understanding what Jesus says. She says, we've been sick looking for you, you could say. And he says to them, and this is why I would actually uh, understand the marginal note here. Uh, not in my father's house. It could be that. But why is it that you were looking for me? I believe the sense of what he's saying is, why were you even looking for me at all? Did you not know that it was necessary for me to be in the things of my father? That's literally what it is. And you can see how there's some interpretation here. It's either uh, about my father's business, you may have heard it translated, or at, in my father's house, in the things of my father. I do believe because Mary is saying, uh, we have been anxiously looking for you. She's not really referencing a place. It's not that Jesus had to be here of anywhere, but that he had to be doing the things of God. That's what it seems, should have been apparent to them. That was so apparent to Jesus. But of all the things maybe that we could observe here, it's in this setting where he's having to respond to a load of emotion from his mom, understandably. Jesus is calm. He's meek. He's humble. He's submissive. And he responds with a question. And it's very clear that he is... He has absolute clarity about his responsibilities in this situation. Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in, note this, 
my father's house? What did Mary just say? Behold, your father and I have been looking for you. Jesus doesn't throw it back in her face, but there is a deliberate repeating here. Did you not know that I had to be in the house or about the things of my father? And here I believe you see his model obligation to his heavenly father. He, he knew what his responsibilities were. He, he expresses, I believe, genuine surprise, not that they had looked anywhere but the temple, but that they were looking at all. I believe the implication is that if they had known what it was necessary for him to be doing, they wouldn't have had to search for him anywhere, nor have any anxiety about him. So maybe you'd ask, what, what was it that Jesus was so clear that he had to be doing? I do believe that that translation, I, I had to be about my father's business, is helpful. Yes, he, he had to be in his father's house, you could say, but more importantly, he had to be doing his father's will. And there are statements to this effect that Jesus made when he was a grown man. In John 4, 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And there's even a little bit of purpose to this when he repeats something similar in John 5, 36. The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. What Jesus was doing when he was obeying the Father was showing that God sent me on this mission to do his will. So again, maybe you'd ask, what was God's will for Jesus when he's 12? What, did, what was so essential for him to be doing? Well, he doesn't enumerate, and his parents don't understand, and Luke doesn't really care to explain for us what exactly he meant. But perhaps it was to learn more about the scriptures. That's what he was doing. Perhaps to learn more about himself in the scriptures. And there's some mystery there. How does Jesus learn as the God-man when his understanding is so clear already? Perhaps it was even to signal to observers of his presence and to raise expectations of the Messiah. If you look back earlier in the chapter in verse 30, this does seem to be part of what God intended to have happen at the temple. He told these people to be in the temple so that they could look for the Messiah. And when it happened, they're telling other people around them. They come and Simeon says, he praises the Lord. You're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. He's declaring that this baby, this infant, is God's salvation. For the world. And it's at the temple. And then look in verse 38. Anna comes up and praises God and is prophesying. At that very moment, uh, Anna began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. God had a purpose to bring Jesus to the temple when he was a baby. Perhaps God also had a purpose to bring Jesus to the temple when he was a boy. So that there would be testimony that God's salvation, God's Messiah, had arrived. In any case, it is very clear to Jesus 
that although he had an earthly father to whom he had obligations, he also had a heavenly father that he had to obey. And he was. That's what he was doing. This isn't an accident. It's not Jesus being left behind because he was hiding or because he overslept or because his parents were negligent. This was Jesus' purpose to obey his heavenly father. He knew that he had a special relationship with God, even when he was 12. And he knew he had special responsibilities to God. I think you could even say he knew he was the Messiah. And just because he was obeying God doesn't mean he was excused from obeying the fifth commandment. And in some remarkable way, he did both. And you see that next as he follows this interaction up with fully submitting himself to his finite flawed parents, even though they misunderstood him. They did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. It had never stopped. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Jesus really is the perfect child. He was a model for us in subjecting himself to his parents. He arranged himself under them, and that really does elevate the role of a parent in this world, doesn't it? That the God-man would submit to and really honor that relationship that God had instituted. If the sinless one subjected himself to parents, don't you think we sinful children should, young people? Jesus never broke this command. He kept it in every way, according to all of its intent in the law. So children, I would urge you to pursue being obedient and submissive to your parents from your heart, not just on the outside, but Jesus even did this from his heart. He's an example here. He's a model here. He wanted to do this. He delighted to do it. He did it, what do we say, willingly, joyfully, he did it without complaint, without excuse, without delay, without argument. How many of these phrases do we heap up trying to teach our children what obedience looks like? Jesus did all of them perfectly. He never failed. And what you find, probably, children, is that you're not this obedient. You never do it perfectly. None of us ever has. You can't be like Jesus. But Jesus was, and you can ask for his help to do that. He is your example, but he's also your help. And he can be your savior. He was model in subjecting himself to his parents. But then you see, really, model development, you could say. He kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. And just briefly, he grew, you could say, intellectually. He, he came to live life skillfully in God's world. He understood all things in connection to God, and he knew how to navigate life in a God-fearing way. He grew physically. He apparently had a normal development for a young boy, a young man. He grew spiritually. Can we, can we conceive of that? He grew in favor with God. And he grew socially. As he grew in all of these other ways, he had everything that he needed to be able to relate to other people. He grew in favor with God and men. And of course, that favor did not last forever, but he was growing in it. 
And that, these are ways that he is a model for us, for as parents, how we ought to raise our children, as children, how we ought to pursue Christ-likeness. But in all of this, so what? Jesus was ordinary. He was extraordinary. He's a man. He's the God-man. He grew, he developed, he lived in all the ordinary things of life. But the great difference between him and every other man who's ever lived is that he did it perfectly. Without any flaw, without any error, without any omission. He did it in complete obedience to his heavenly father externally, internally, his mind, his will, his emotions. And why did he do this? Christ Jesus came to honor God, reveal the Father true, to rescue sinners for the one to whom all praise is due. Jesus was the perfect son so that he could be the perfect savior. He was the perfect son to Mary and Joseph, to honor the law of God, to honor his parents. He was the perfect son to God his heavenly Father so he could fill fulfill all righteousness and do all of his Father's will. And what was God's design in this? It was so that he could die in your place as a lamb without blemish, completely pure, entirely righteous. So what? Believe that Jesus always did that which pleased the Father. This was his desire. This is what he loved to do. Everything that you see in the life of Jesus is exactly what God would do in that setting. It's really a picture of godliness in a child. He was the perfect son so that he could be the sinless savior. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, especially you young people, but all of us. He was righteous. He is righteous. He did it from his youth. He spent... 30-some years on this earth to live perfectly and righteously. So if you don't know the Lord, He is the one who is qualified to be your Savior. If you have never trusted in Jesus, He is the only one that you can trust in because He's the only one who is spotless and who is eternal. He's perfect. He's the law keeper. He was a son of of men and the Son of God, and He is God. He's eternal. But if you're a believer, that verse that I mentioned at the beginning, he, was a, he is a sympathetic high priest. He's been tempted in all points as we are. He is like us, and that is on purpose. What should we do with that? Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's a great hope for us Christians, isn't it? He is like us, yet without sin. Have you ever gone to a friend looking for help to deal with something, maybe even some sin? And they're really a great help to you because they understand the struggle that you have and maybe how you got out of it. And they've been there. It's really a great blessing to have that sympathy But how much greater of a blessing is it to draw near to a friend who has been there and not only experienced the temptation, but resisted it all the way to its fullest power and not ever given in? 
not only can he sympathize, but he can help you obey, which is a power that no sinner has. So draw near to this one who is full of grace. He was the perfect son. I hope you've seen that in this brief glimpse at 12 years old, which is remarkable in itself. But he is the sinless one so that he would be the righteous one as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I would urge you today, if you've never called on his name, turn from your sin and trust in Christ. If you come to him, he will never, never cast you out. Praise the Lord that we have a sinless Savior. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the wisdom of your plan and uh, just the many mysteries and marvels of it that God became man. You came and dwelled among us. You became one of us. The creator became the creature. You took on flesh. And you are today, Lord Jesus, not in the grave, but alive, and a faithful high priest. But you did go in and offer yourself once for all to bring us to God. Lord, we see your love in this, your love for the whole world, that you would send your son to die so that whoever would believe in him doesn't have to perish in their sin, but can have everlasting life with you through him. But I pray that everyone here, as we see this glimpse of a, a, a sinless child, the sinless child, that our hearts and our minds would be drawn to our exalted Savior, at whose name we should bow. Lord, may everyone here call on him as Lord and Christ, because that's who he is. Everything he claimed was true. He did all your will. And Lord Jesus, we rejoice that not only are you righteous for yourself, but you are our righteousness. God, our righteousness, because apart from you, we have none. But Father, thank you for accepting us in him. We pray this in Christ's name.